0: Christmas and movies go together in America. In fact, the last time I was in a theater was last Christmas. I watched the Kurt Warner movie that came out, I think, on Christmas Day. And they've been around, Christmas movies, they've been around since the beginning of filming, but to understand how deeply they're in our psyche, you have to go back to a particular era because that's when Christmas movies became big. And that's the World War II era. Um, People then in World War II were looking for encouragement. Survival was at stake. The beauty and the joys of Christmas stood in stark contrast to war, Hitler, separation, death, and loss. Christmas stood for hope, miracles, love, and children. Hollywood recognized this and cashed in on it and cranked out movies that are still classics today. Miracle on 34th Street, A Christmas Carol, Holiday Affair, Holiday Inn, White Christmas, Remember the Night, Christmas in Connecticut. And one that comes a little bit after World War II, but still in that era, uh, white Christmas, and the one that's always on at Christmas. Say it with me. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Well, these are just a few of the stories that built the relationship we Americans have with the movies at Christmas. People went to the movies craving hope, and they felt there was something about Christmas that held the key to hope. But, and this is the way it is today, when the movie said the end and the credits rolled, it was the same old world. It was just a 90-minute escape with popcorn. When people donned their coats and walked out to their cars, nothing had changed, and the hero didn't save the world. But this epic is different. When you encounter this story, the real star of Christmas, your world is forever changed, and our hero does save the world. Welcome to the real star of Christmas. Just to follow a flight plan, there are five messages in this series. So let me show you where we're headed. Movies have a producer, a director, supporting cast. There's always a bad guy. And of course, a star. Well, today's message is called Produced By. And next week's message is Directed By. Week three, supporting cast. And by the way, there are still roles available. You may want to audition for this epic. Week four is the villain, and in all of our Christmas Eve services this year, the title of the message is the title of our series, The Real Star of Christmas. So let's get started. Let's meet the producer. You rarely ever do when you see a movie. You might see the producer's name, but the producer tends to be behind the scenes. But the producer is the one who makes everything happen. The producer decides what the story is going to be, underwrites all the expenses, holds everything together. No producer, no movie, the greatest story ever told, the epic that we're going to be talking about all this season is produced by God the Father. We need to talk about him just a little bit. I don't think we ever talk much in church about God the Father. We talk a lot about Jesus as well we should. Occasionally we talk about the Holy Spirit, but rarely ever, and I can't even remember doing a whole sermon on God the Father except maybe years ago when I was doing a series on the Lord's Prayer. Rarely every day we talk about God the Father. So let's talk about him today. You know, the Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. It just declares it. We just meet God. I mean, the motor's running when we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In, the way of, in God's way of looking at it, proof was always Unnecessary. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the Bible says the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. God just doesn't feel that he needs to prove to you his existence when there's such obvious proof in the natural world. That's spelled out for us very clearly in Romans chapter 1. Since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Someone will say, I don't believe in God. God will have to prove himself to me. Well... I I don't want to, I'm not trying to change your mind necessarily. I just want you to know how God feels about it. God feels like with everything you can see in the natural creation, he owes no one any idea of proof given the fact that he is so obvious. You know, to me, I never can understand how someone can disbelieve God who is a scientist because they have to look at all the intricate They have to look at God's creation all the time. I mean, here's the thing. If you just take an organ of your body, if you just take the eye, for instance, we barely even understand the complexity of the eye. We we just barely get it. The idea that we, we just barely understand it cannot make out of nothing an eye. The idea that that happened by accident is just one of the systems of our body. I mean, the way God looks at it, anyone who can look at the sophistication of creation and doubt his existence shouldn't go outside without a helmet on. That's just how God looks at it. Well, that tells us who made everything, but right out of the box, we're challenged to grasp, and I never quite know what to call this. We are challenged to grasp what I would call the godness of God, because it's such a huge concept. How can we approach the godness of God, who made him? And what exactly is God? Is God just a bigger version of us? I think a lot of people struggle with these just basic questions. Who made God? What exactly is God? Let's just take that second question first. And that second question gets even more challenging when we read Genesis chapter one. And God keeps referring to himself as us. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. Well, that sounds plural, doesn't it? But when we get over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and this is what the Jewish man or woman begins his day with every day, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. But why does God say us when the verse that must be quoted every day by the Jewish person is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But here's what's really interesting. The word for God there in Hebrew is Elohim, and it's in the plural. Well, throughout scripture, the Bible answers that question. It doesn't attempt to explain it to us. But it tells us over and over that God is one God but three persons. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the way, as we celebrate Christmas, let's remember that Jesus was not a human who became God. He was God who became human. In John chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1, the Bible tells us that he made everything that was made. He is creator. And yet we know him as the person of Jesus. Now, it's hard for us to grasp, and through the years, people have come up to me, especially when I was a younger preacher, and they would say, Oh, I understand the Trinity. No, you don't. (laughs) You know, people say, Oh, the Trinity is like the egg. You know, you got. One egg, but you got three parts. You have the shell, you have the white, you have the yolk. Or people have said to me, the Trinity is like water. It can take the form of steam or vapor. It can take the form of liquid. Or if it's frozen, it can take the form of solid. Well, okay, that's an egg and that's ice and water and vapor. But it's not the Trinity because there is nothing in the world that we can think about that anyway describes the Trinity of God. The closest thing to it is that you're a trichotomy. You are body, your soul, and your spirit, and you're, but you're one person. But even that comes short. Here's our issue with understanding the Trinity God is not made in our image, we are made in God's image. And, and to try to project God's creation back onto Him and somehow understand Him is implausible and it won't work. Well, there are those who try to thread the needle, and they say, well, here's the thing about God. He's one God, but he manifested himself in three different ways. In the Old Testament, he was God the Father. For those 33 years when he was on the earth, he's Jesus Christ. And now in our era, he is the Holy Spirit. One person just manifested three ways. But there's a huge, enormous, infinite problem with that. Because there are times in the Bible where we see all three persons of the Godhead at the same time. Take, for instance, Jesus' baptism. What's Jesus doing? He's being baptized. God the Father is speaking from heaven. Holy Spirit is descending as a dove. You got three persons. Or when Jesus was praying in the garden, that high priestly prayer in John 17, where he's pouring out his heart to God the Father. And we'll we'll look at this verse in just a moment, where Jesus said, Not my will be done, but your will be done. You got two people there. You got two parts of the Godhead. You got Jesus talking to the Father. He said earlier in that little context in John 14, 15, and 16, I, Jesus, will pray the Father, and he will send you the Holy Spirit. There's no getting around it. And that brings us to something that I've already hinted at, but I'll probably say again in this service. We cannot process the existence of the creator of the universe by projecting creation back onto him. Because once again, he's not made in our image. We're made in his image. There is only one way to know about God the Father, and that is through revelation. In other words, God revealing parts of who he is to us. So that's the second question. But let's go back to that first question that's a little more thorny. I remember asking this question to my mother when I was about four years old because my mother told me that God made me. What's the next question that I wanna know? Who made God? If God made me, if that's my inception, if that's my origin, if if that's my Genesis, then who made God? Well, let's embrace the obvious issue. If somebody made God, that person would be God. If somebody made that person, that person would be God. Now I know somebody's sitting out there smugly and saying, Mark, that is why I believe in Darwinian evolution, because your premise is implausible. So's yours. Just want you to know I know that. <laughs> because this issue of origins is always thorny. You know, I'm not, I'm not being tried here, I'm being serious about this. Their idea, well, it was a big bang. Well, what went bang? What made it go bang? See, it's those simple questions that nag us. You know, as long as we build some sort of platform of sophistication, we can ignore these obvious, simple questions. Here's the deal. We have presented for us a natural order that is massive and amazing and extraordinary. And it either, you got to pick a narrative. It either goes back to a supreme divine first cause or it goes back to nothing. I had way rather take, I'm an old debater from high school and college days. And I promise you, I had way rather take this debate from the premise of a supreme divine first cause than I had from nothing because there's just too much here for nothing to bring something. Well, who made God? Well, one more time. It's important for us to understand God is not made in our image. We're made in God's image. And the only thing that we know personally through our five senses is just what we can see. And everything we can see has a beginning. You go out to a cemetery, what do you see on the tombstone? You see A date of birth and a date of death. So for us, we just sort of project onto God. There's got to be some kind of beginning for God, but God is not, he's not temporal like we are. He's eternal. You you learned this in geometry. You didn't know it, but you learned it in geometry. First day in geometry. What happens in geometry? Your teacher walks up to the board or whatever they teach on today. And teacher draws, puts a point there, draws a line, puts another point on the end. And she says, what did I just draw for you? A line segment, right? So the teacher walks up and draws, puts a point on the board, draws a straight line, puts an arrow on the end. What'd she just draw for you? All right. Point of beginning, no point of ending. It's infinite. But do you remember when the teacher was explaining to you what a line was? Because she would have drawn a line on the board, put an arrow on both sides. What she is saying is technically and theoretically, a line is infinite. It has no point of beginning. It has no point of ending. Well, let me just tell you, when you were in geometry the first day, what your teacher just taught you was about life. Because when she drew that line segment, she was drawing for you what life appears to be, a point of beginning and a point of ending. When she drew that ray, praise God, she was drawing us because we had a point of beginning, but we don't have any ending. But when she drew that line with a point, an arrow on both sides, she was drawing an idea of what God is like because God has no point of beginning, no point of ending. And I just wrecked some of your world because you thought there is no way that God is taught to us by science and that would be so empirically wrong. See, we have a larger problem, and I just described it a moment ago. We think of beginnings and endings. We think, that, we think that that's how God must be, but here's what we must understand. Temporary is the aberration. Eternity is the norm. You understand there was eternality. It was the only existence until God made human beings, and for the first time, he introduced the concept of time, and at that point, you got beginnings and endings, and to somehow project that back onto the creator It's so fallacious. I'd love to go on and on today about God, but to show you God would be impossible. That's what Austin and I were talking about before I came out here. I mean, how does a small, picayune brain like Mark Hoover's describe God? Well, here's the thing I want you to know. The Bible does describe God, but it never defines him because your God is so big. And even if we could look at the whole Bible in one service, which is what I would love to do this morning, We still would not be able to process God. Here's the best way I can describe it. Suppose you went out to, um, let's say, San Diego. And you stood in the Pacific Ocean. And you took a cup with you out there to the edge of the water. And in that water, you scooped up a cup of water. What would you have in the cup? You would have the Pacific Ocean. That is the essence of what you would have in the cup. It would essentially be the Pacific Ocean. That's what you scooped out. But do you have the Pacific Ocean in your cup? There are no whales in your cup. You can't sell cruise ships on that. So while you would have essentially the Pacific Ocean in your cup, you would not have the Pacific Ocean in your cup in its entirety, in its totality. And for us today, our processing, our understanding of God the Father is like that. We have dipped our cup in the ocean and essentially we know God, but we don't know everything about God. I would say when I was eight years old, I've been preaching since I was 16. I've been pastoring since I was 20. I've been in the word of God every day of my life. And yet at the end of the day, I feel like to me, God is still 99% mystery and 1% understanding. But oh, do I love what I have in my cup. And someone will say, well, Mark, until I get all these answers, I cannot believe in God. I want to tell you something. You don't have all the answers of any entity that you believe in. You don't have all the answers for science. I know that. I know that you need to know. I know that you don't know. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, when we approach any part of God's creation, all we can have is just a little cup of it. The Bible says the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We're not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has. Remember what I told you a few moments ago? The only way to know God is through revelation. All that he has revealed to us. I'm not, people, people ask me questions sometimes, and they're the questions I have about the Bible. There are many things that God doesn't answer, and I don't try to answer those questions because I don't know the secret things belong to God. He is the manager of the universe, not me. He's not asked me to manage the universe, He's asked me to listen to what he's revealed. Well, God has revealed himself to us in two ways. If you want to know God, he's revealed himself to us in the word of God, which is why all the messages that we use at New Spring, we take from the word of God. And secondly, he's revealed himself to us by his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into our world, and he's the real star of Christmas, that's what this whole series is about. When Jesus came into our world, he was God in skin. And for the first time, God walked among his creation for the first time since the Garden of Eden. And that takes us back to our talk today, which is the producer. The producer of the story of Christmas, that epic is produced by God the Father. And even though there's so much we can't know about God, what I love about God so much is that God enters into a relationship with his creation God is not an absentee father. He's not sitting up in heaven just sort of watching from a distance the world. God wants to enter in. I mean, he even enters in with the creation, the animal kingdom. The Bible tells us that God watches when sparrows fall. He knows every sparrow. How many of you have an animal that you love? I do. Mary Alice and I have a little dog, Ginger. Ginger thinks she's human. I don't think she's ever looked in the mirror, so every time there's a dog around, she's like, why did you let this dog in here? And you know, I, I think sometimes, I feel like Mark Twain, he said, I know that heaven is not by merit. If it was, your dog would get in and you wouldn't. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about ginger. I mean, here's the thing, God, God, God so loves his creation, he enters in even to the animal world, but most of all, and supremely most of all, God enters into a relationship with the people that he's created. Doesn't just observe, he enters in. The Bible tells us that when he created Adam and Eve that every day he would come and I'm not even sure what manifestation it was, but he walked with them every day in the evening. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve, strangely enough, decided to flip God off and they lost paradise because they sinned. And from that moment, there was a breakage between human beings and God. But God did not allow the world that he created to spin into a black hole. He did not abandon us. Instead, he produced the Christmas narrative. I wanna share with you two verses. The first one, I know most of you know, maybe by heart. In John chapter three, verse 16, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, God enters his creation. He did not, as I said, wanna let us spin into a black hole. He loved the world And so he produced the Christmas narrative. He sent his son Jesus into the world. The second verse that I want to share with you is Galatians chapter four, verse four. The Bible says, but when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us. Hello. So he could adopt us as his very own children. Well, I'm almost out of time this morning. But in the time that we have left, what can we learn about the producer of the Christmas narrative? What can we learn about God the Father? Well, let's start with this. In the Old Testament, people did not refer to God as Father. I mean, when you take your Bible and you look at the Old Testament, 39 books, that's that's most of the the Bible. When you look at that part of the Bible in history, people did not get up in the morning and say, our Father. Um, God was seen as distant. And the people were even afraid to say his name. But Jesus changed all that. When he came into the world, he referred to God as, and I want you to, there's going to be a progression here, so work with me for a few moments. When Jesus came into the world, for the first time we had the expression, my father. Because over and over Jesus would say, my father. Nearly 50 times in the New Testament, Jesus calls God, my father. My father. It's interesting. I mentioned a moment ago that people didn't do that in the Old Testament. There was a German scholar a few years ago who did a deep dive on this and he looked at the Old Testament economy and he could not find one person who referred to God as my father. Jesus was the first one to come into the world and call Jehovah God, God the Father, my father. But one day he was talking to his disciples, and he must have blown their mind because one of the disciples said, "Lord, teach us to pray." I mean, they would have grown up praying, but they saw Jesus praying, and they thought, "You know, I don't know what we're." It would be sort of like if I watched Tiger, Tiger Woods play golf. I would say, I, "I don't know what I've been playing, but it's not golf." And that's kind of how the disciples were. They saw Jesus praying. They're like, I don't, we don't know what we've been doing, but that's not prayer. And like I say, Jesus must have blown their minds because instead of saying, my father, he took us to a new place. He said to his disciples, this then is how you should pray, our father. Massive. Because Jesus was saying, this is the way we roll in heaven. He is my father, I'm in heaven. That's, That's how I've talked to him. You know, from eternity past, I've called him my father. But you know what? Because you're in a relationship with me, you can call him father too. It's okay for you. When you pray, you don't have to say, hey, Jesus, father, you can say, our father. And John explains how this could be in John chapter one. Watch this language to all who believed him, Jesus, and accepted him. He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with the physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from, hello, God. So because I'm born of God, this is why Jesus said you have to be born again. When I pray, even though, Jesus, even though God the Father is not my natural father as he is for Jesus, but Jesus gave me permission because I belong to the family, I've been adopted in the family of God, I can say, our Father. So it went from my Father to our Father, but then Jesus took it to a whole new place because he began to say over and over to, as he talked to his people, Your father, your father. I can't even imagine this. I try to wrap my mind around it. I just got too small a mind. It won't wrap very much. But when I read about who my father is, the fact that he would want to be my father just knocks my socks off. Because when we read who God is in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, the Bible says he's the one who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands. He's measured the sky between his thumb and his little finger. He's the one who's put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill. Verse 26 says he's the one who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name, and never overlooks a single one. And yet Jesus said, Mark, he's your father, your father. How massive that the God of the universe would be my father. And when I pray, I can talk to him. Well, I don't have a lot of time left, but for the few moments that I have left, I want to just give you some of the verses of scripture where Jesus talks about your father, the producer of the Christmas epic. Jesus said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Like today, you're taking your kid out to eat in the back seat, and he says, hey, I want to go to McDonald's. Would you give him a bag of rocks? No, because he's your son or she's your daughter. If he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, he doesn't mean that we're evil per se, just compared to God the Father. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In Matthew 6, verse 4, we talked about being generous a few moments ago. God says, give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Matthew 6, verse 8, I love this. Your father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Do you realize when you pray, God's already into your situation? I mean, when you tell God what you need, it's not news to him. Is there anybody, I may be the only one here today. Is there anyone beside me that sometimes when you try to pray, you just don't know what to say to God because the need is just too deep, too painful? You try to find the words to talk to God, it's like they're just so hard. Isn't it great to know that maybe the most intimate prayer you can ever pray when you talk to God is just, God, you know, God, you know. Too painful for me to put in words, but you know. When you talk to your father, he knows what you need before you ask him. Now, you know what? Here's the thing. And and to me, that's built on a more fundamental premise. And that premise is this. God has got to really be into you to know what you need before you pray. I've had so many stories like this. But one of my favorites is when I was in my mid-20s, I was working at my home church, which... (laughs) And Fort Worth was in the inner city, and, and the area around the church had changed a great deal. So most of the people who came to our church came from distances away. They moved out of the area. And I had a real passion to start a kids' ministry to reach, to reach those people that lived around our church. And I knew that the way to do that, I've never changed my mind on that. And that's one reason why I believe so much in kids' ministry. I, I just believe that that's what I need to do. So I started a prehistoric kids' world. But I remember in those days thinking that the kids that lived in our area had no transportation. And I I mean, I sure wasn't going to be able to pick them up because I had a Volkswagen diesel rabbit. I mean, it was just Mary Alice and me and Jonathan was an infant. So we've been to Houston. On the way back from Houston, I just started thinking, you know, it's impossible. I don't have any money for this. I don't even know how I could have it. But I thought what I would love more than anything else is just to have an old passenger van where I could drive around and pick up the kids and bring them to our church. I just, I mean, just had that thought. I mean, about 40 miles south of Fort Worth. Hadn't told anybody. I think I told Mary Alice about it, but we didn't have a cell phone in those days, so she couldn't have told anybody about it. As God is my witness, I pulled into my garage as I got back to Fort Worth, and my phone was ringing. I walked in, answered the phone, and it was my dad. We had a guy in our church in those days who had a used car lot. His name was Roger Haney. And dad said, Mark, he said, this is just out of the blue, but he said a few hours ago, Roger Haney called me and said that he's got a van, a passenger van, on his lot and he just wants to give it to you now here's the thing dad said he called him a few hours before I only had the thought just a few minutes before but I've never forgotten that I've never I, I realized that your father knows what you need before you ask him And you say, Mark, I don't know if God sees me. Listen to Matthew 10, verse 29. Jesus said, what's the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are numbered, which for God, that's a harder job for some of you than it is for me. (laughs) So don't be afraid. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, so don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now, I need to go to just a little negative place. Will you give me a little latitude Because I'm really concerned about the cancel culture that's going on today. They got a whole generation of virtue signalers. And I think the only way they can feel good about themselves is to rant about what somebody else does wrong. Now, here's the thing. That's perfectly fine if you don't want a relationship with God. Because here's the thing that God does know. You and I are sinners too. And if anybody wanted to cancel us, we could be canceled. If if everybody knew everything that we've ever thought, everything we ever did, I promise you, we could be canceled real easily. And this idea of cancel culture, it's the spirit of antichrist. It's not the spirit of Christ. We'll prove that to you. The Bible says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father, your father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. See, I I can't afford to be part of the cancel culture. Just too expensive. Too expensive. Could all of us just get over the virtue signaling thing? If you need to find personal value, find it in the promises of God. Don't find it in trying to find some way to make people feel like, oh, okay, I go along with everybody, so I must be right. Get over that. Grow up if that's where you are. If you're insecure, find your security in God. Well, there's the producer of the Christmas movie, where this time the hero does save the world and changes everything. But there's something that I hope you've picked up on. I hope you picked up on the reality that the producer of Christmas also wants to produce your story. He wants to produce your epic. He wants to come into your life and, and make your epic story a production that changes the world. Oh, one more thing before we're finished today. Remember the progression I've given you? Jesus came along saying, my father, and then it became our father, and then it became your father, but he had one more. It was the night where Jesus would be arrested, and he is praying, talking to his father. But his heart is so heavy because he's staring at the cross, and the Bible says that the emotion was so deep that it actually affected him physically where he began to sweat drops of blood. Science tells us that can happen. The Bible says he left his disciples, Mark 14, 35. He went a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass from him. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want to do your will, not mine. My father, our father, your father, Abba, father. What is that? Well, just to give you a clinical answer, Abba, father is two words for father put together. The word that you have father is translated from a Greek word, pater. The translators want you to understand what pater meant, so they just put it into English, our father. Well, why didn't they do that with Abba? Why didn't they translate that word for us? They just left it there in the original. I mean, just FYI, Abba is, uh, is an Aramaic word that comes from the Syriac. There was a problem with translating that. You remember the movie, You Can't Handle the Truth? You know, Well the translators are afraid we couldn't handle the truth. But see, Abba, Abba is a very, it's a sound that a, a toddler might make. It's, it's an Pater is a more mature-sounding word. You, you need the translation, but Abba is such a familiar term. It's such an endearing term. It, it's such a it's such an informal term. Just as a child can easily say daddy or dada, it, it, the sound just is it, it's possible for a child to make. So the idea that that could somehow be translated to talk about the God of the universe. Let's just leave it, Abba. Let's just leave it there in the Aramaic. Well, it was Jesus. And Jesus was his natural son. So when Jesus is praying, maybe, it just, maybe it's just for Jesus to say, Abba, Father. I would hold until we get to the book of Romans and Galatians. Let me read the verse from Galatians. And because, and because there is important. Because we are his children. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Three years ago, I was invited. Mary Alice and I were invited to Israel by the Israeli foreign minister. He would be like our secretary of state. And the reason why we were invited to Israel is they wanted to show us what most tourists didn't see in Israel. And I remember they took us down to the southern border, the Gaza border. And the police chief there showed us as they were, 900 trucks would go back and forth between Israel and Egypt. They would have to check each truck. And and, and young men, Palestinians and Israelis together were checking these trucks with automatic weaponry. And as the police chief was showing us around. I think I've told you this before. He pointed, to the, he pointed to the shelter and he said, if the sirens go off in Tel Aviv, you got 15 minutes. He said, if these sirens go off, he said, you're not going to run to those shelters in 15 seconds. And he walked around and he showed us mortar fire where the concrete had been gashed. So they wanted us to see that, but then they took us to the other end of Israel, the North end of Israel, right on the Syrian border. And an IDF official was kind of taking us around. You know, IDF are serious serious players. And we were on the very edge. We were on the very border of Israel and Syria. There was a valley under this hill that we were on. And then at the end of that valley was Syria. And we were looking over to our left was the mountain range, the Mount Hermon and the snow on the little mountain range. But I'll never forget looking over there and thinking, because at that time, the hostilities were big and bold in Syria. And I was thinking about, wow, that, that, that's Syria just right there. Within this, IDF officials started telling us a story about his son, teenage son. He said, my son, and he was speaking in English all this time. He said, my son was on a field trip, and he said, you know, you could go over into Syria if you had papers, if you had permission, but you'd only stay there during the daytime. You had to come home in the evening. He said, my son was on a field trip over there in the Syrian territory. He said, right over, that, right over that ridge there, and he said, he went to sleep in the afternoon, and when he woke up, it was night. And the other kids had left him. He was there by himself in Syrian territory. And he said, he called me on his cell phone. And that's when he, he, he said, and you could just hear the frantic nature in his voice as he tried to explain to us his son's phone call. But interestingly, he went into Hebrew at that point as he was quoting his son. The only word I recognized as he told me that story as he was speaking in that frantic voice was the word, Avah. He was saying to his dad, Abba, I'm in trouble, come and get me. I stood there that day and I said, Someday that's gonna be an illustration for New Spring. Today's that day. (laughs) If God is your father, when you're in trouble, when you're scared, maybe you're in a place you don't belong, isn't it great? That like a child, we can call out to our Father in heaven, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. He's the producer of Christmas. He's behind the scenes, but he produces it all. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us so that he could adopt us. As his very own children. Would you pray with me, please? All over the building, just kind of heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment. We just need a moment of intimacy here today. Am I talking to anybody? And in life, you're kind of like the situation of that IDF officer son. You just desperately need God to come and change your story, change your future. I wanna pray for you right now. And I know that there are those of you watching television, watching online. I'm just gonna trust God that he can see your hand. But in the quietness and anonymity of this moment, you just say, Mark, I'm God's child, but I'm, I'm, I'm desperately needing God to come work in my life right now. And I want you to pray for me. Would you just put your hand up for a moment? Hold it there. And I'm going to, yes, yes, I see it all over the building. Yes, even the balcony, galleries. Yes, just hold your hand up there for a moment. In fact, I'm going to ask you to hold it while I'm praying. I want God to look down upon you. Father, you see the hands that are lifted today, that they need you in a very special way. Father, see their hands, see their hearts, know their need. You're their father. And oh God, I pray, since we can call you Abba, Father, we know that you care about us. Please work, please move. And help us to remember that it started right now that we cried out to you and you heard our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And put your hands down still. Would you pray with me? Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here that says, I'd like to join that family? You know that God produced the Christmas story so that he could adopt us and we could become his children. And that idea of being able to call God, my father is very attractive to you. You may have grown up in religion. You may have grown up in non-theism, but you're just saying today, I want to be, I want to have a relationship with the God who measured the sky between his thumb and little finger. You can do that. You can do it. It's free. You can do it instantly because God made a way for you to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Even though we are sinners, Jesus came, God in skin. He paid for your sin on the cross and then he arose from the grave to prove he's God and he's in heaven as king. And if you by faith will call on him, just reach out and call on him, then he will hear your prayer and God will forgive you, adopt you, And today when you pray, you can pray my father in heaven. You want that to happen? I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that call out for that relationship. And if you want to join me, you can pray with me. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And because Jesus is alive. I trust Jesus as my savior and my king. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Give me 30 more seconds. If you just pray with me, whether you're online, on television, or here at any of our auditoriums at New Spring. I have a gift for you. This is the box. It's it's got a New Spring Bible, just like I preach from. You say, Mark, I have a lot of questions. I wrote a little book called My New Walk with God that'll answer a lot of questions. There's even a journal in here where you can take some notes and some coupons. Just our way of loving you and saying, let us walk with you a little bit in your new relationship with God. All you have to do, whether you're in here or outside our campus, just text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. If you're watching online or on television, follow the steps and we will mail this to you. If you're here in the house, either South or North Auditorium, anywhere, you can take this box with you right now. You can put it under your arm, take it home, and get started following Jesus with it. All you have to do is go to any info center and just say, I pray with Mark. They won't hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. They just want to give this to you. Thank you for being here for Produced By. Next week, it's directed by. See you then.